Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. For a very long time, too long actually, women were locked into very defined roles when it came to rock and roll. Girls were expected to look pretty and do little more than sing. Okay, maybe they could shake a tambourine or something, but that was about it. Everything else was unladylike. And when it came to singing, it was, just stick to the conventional stuff, dear. Don't get any crazy ideas in your little head. This is a woman's role in rock, and you should just stick to it. There you go. That's a nice little lady. But then along came punk rock in the 1970s. Punk did many things for rock, including knocking down a lot of heretofore inviolable gender roles. The central tenet of punk was that anyone should have the right to say anything in any manner they wished, regardless of who they were. And that included women and their right to self-expression. And the result was fantastic. Freed from all the old expectations, women were free to reinvent themselves as musicians in a million different ways. And that led to a wonderful array of female performers. Some of my favorites are the ones who decided to spit in the face of virtually every rock and roll convention. Women who, before punk came along and liberated everyone from the tyranny of the way things ought to be. Women who developed styles that were different and unique and utterly unlike anything the world had ever heard before. Yes, some of them were an acquired taste and took a little getting used to. But once people figured out what they were trying to do and what they were all about, it was inevitable that they became addicted, enchanted, inspired. We're going to look at 10 of these women. I call them the Queens of Quirk. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hi again, I'm Alan Cross. Every so often, we seem to hit a cycle where it seems that every single female singer sounds the same. This happens a lot with pop music. There are really not many sonic differences between, say, uh, Britney, Christina, Miley, and Ariana. There are minor differences in delivery and vocal timbre, but unless you were familiar with their songs, you would be forgiven for not being able to tell them apart or get them mixed up. Happens to me all the time. But when we slide into the world of alt-rock, there are some women who sound like no one else. And in many cases, they look like no one else. They have fantastic and sometimes bewildering senses of style and poise and confidence. They are, in every sense of the word, extraordinary. I'd like to take this hour to run through 10 of the coolest and quirkiest women alt-rock has ever seen and heard. These are the queens of quirk. And if we're going to name a godmother of quirk, we must begin... With Patty Smith. The way they smell, here I got beat up here, smell and die, hooks, midwife, sweat. I would rather smell the way boys smell. Or the schoolboys, with their legs flap under the desk and study hall. Patty Smith, with what some music historians call the first ever punk rock record. It's called Piss Factory, 
the B-side of a one-off 7-inch single released in the summer of 1974. No one, man or woman, was making music quite like this back then. Patty was a poet and music writer who often did readings with her friend, record store clerk Lenny Kay, noodling around on a guitar in the background. Piss Factory was sort of an accident. They had booked time to record a cover of the Jimi Hendrix song Hey Joe and finished early. So they recorded this other track that told of Patty's time working in a doll factory. They pressed up a thousand copies and seated it at independent bookstores and record sellers. And it sold out almost instantly. This little bit of success set Patty on the road to becoming a genuine recording artist, nailing a major label record deal and becoming a leading icon on the New York punk rock scene and then, well, the rock scene in general. Patty was an inspiration to so many, women and men, with her take-no-prisoners, I-don't-give-a-crap view of the world, the universe, and beyond. She did things her way. End of story. And as a vocalist, no one had ever heard anything like her before. Now, at the time Patti Smith was recording Piss Factory, David Gilmore of Pink Floyd chanced upon a 14-year-old girl who had been playing piano, violin, and organ, as well as writing her own songs. And he knew immediately that this girl was, well, different. Gilmore took a demo tape back to the people at Floyd's label, EMI Records. Prog rot was really hot in the UK at the time, and there was an appetite for artists who sounded and looked different. And this girl seemed to have the goods. EMI quickly signed her to a deal that allowed her to continue to go to school and develop as a musician. And over the next couple of years, she wrote more than 200 songs and played in a bunch of pubs around London. By the summer of 1977, she was deemed ready, and during the period around her 19th birthday, a debut album was recorded. The first single came out in January 1978, and if you were around back then, you may remember the first time you heard Kate Bush. And if you were like me, you probably said something like, What the hell is this? Kate Bush and Wuthering Heights, the first single from her album The Kick Inside, recorded when she was barely 19. Even for something that came out during the punk years, that was unusual. First, there was her singing style and her range. Then there was the matter of a hit song being based on an Emily Bronte novel. And third, she was howled. Not everyone got Kate Bush, of course, but those who did loved her for her... Um, well, let's just call it her ethereal kookiness. And I don't mean that in any kind of a negative way. Nothing Kate did was conventional or traditional. And because she refused to play any live shows for 35 years after one initial tour, she was surrounded by an aura of mystery and myth and legend. It's impossible to say how many future musicians and non-musicians were bewitched by whatever Kate was. To this day, she is one of the most loyal and fanatical fan bases of any artist in the world. By comparison, Lena Lovitch, queen of quirkiness number three, is uh, almost normal. Okay, hang on, I, I, I take that back. She was born in Detroit, but she ended up in art school in England working as a sculptress and a cabaret performer, and also as a saxophone player. And she also worked in film, lending her screams for post-production on horror films. In 1978, around the very same time Kate Bush was debuting on the charts, Lena came to the attention of Stiff Records, an indie label very much at the forefront of the punk and new wave worlds. The result was an album called Stateless, and it features this single. It is definitely quirky. I mean, 
Can you think of another word for it? Lena Lovitch with her fresh and fun hiccupy breakthrough single Lucky Number from 1978, which leads me to Lena's friend Nina Hagen. Nina was born in communist East Berlin and was declared to be an opera prodigy by the time she was nine, but opera wasn't her thing, much to the consternation of the authorities. She insisted on performing songs that were not officially allowed by the communist regime. A series of complications found Nina living in West Germany, where she continued to pursue the kind of music that was forbidden at home. And her performances became more and more unusual. Her costuming became more outrageous. And her singing style got attention for, um, uh, well, just listen. German singer, actress, and performance artist Nina Hagen performing African reggae. Tell you something, if a song like that doesn't classify her as quirky, then there's no hope. We should just, you know, give up. But we won't. Six more queens of quirk next, starting with a direct spiritual descendant of Kate Bush. I call this episode the Queens of Quirk. Ten of the most lovably eccentric female singers ever bestowed upon us by the alt-rock gods and goddesses. Counted down in chronological order, from the oldest to the most recent. And number five on my list is Tori Amos. Now, there are so many similarities between her and Kate Bush. In fact, the comparisons between her and Kate began from the moment she started working as a solo artist. Like Kate, she was a child prodigy. More so, actually, since she was accepted into the music program at John Hopkins University at age five. Five. Youngest ever. But then she was expelled at age 11 because she preferred to play music by ear, which is bad form for a classical music program, and because she preferred rock and pop songs over the old masters. At around the time Kate was performing in pubs as a teenager, Tori was performing at things like country teen talent shows and playing gay bars. She was also absorbing and rejecting various religions, spiritual and philosophical ideas, which can happen when your dad's a minister and there's a Cherokee Indian element to your family tree. By the time she got to her first solo album, she had been part of a failed pop band called Why Can't Tori Read and won a songwriting competition staged by the Baltimore Orioles. The first version of her record was rejected by her label. The second version, it showed much patience with her, was the one they released. Now, not to belabor the point, but anyone familiar with Kate Bush's headspace, which is somewhere beyond the orbit of Saturn, immediately recognized that she and Tori were kindred spirits. Not the same, but definitely fearless in their need to express themselves in the only ways they knew how. Tori Amos and Crucify from her 1992 debut solo record, Little Earthquakes. She has since become one of the world's most respected female singer-songwriters, regarded as quirky at first, but then revered and adored by those who got her. Now, if you look up quirky in the dictionary, I'm pretty sure that one of the definitions will simply read Bjork. This woman is so eclectic and so experimental and so forward-looking that if you describe anything as Bjorkish, Everyone knows exactly what you mean, and that goes beyond wearing a dress that looks like a swan. Björk Gudmundsdottir is, of course, from Iceland. Maybe it's the cold or 
the volcanic gases or the vodka. But in Iceland, Bjork is considered rather normal. Here's another woman who started with music at a very early age. She was in music school by age six, learning classical piano and flute. Her debut album was released in 1977 when she was 12. It was all in Icelandic and became something of a hit at home, such as one can have a hit in a country with a population of 300,000. But anyway, uh, her parents divorced, and she went to live with her mom in a hippie commune. Mom was a serious activist, demonstrating against things like power plants. Bjork was encouraged to explore whatever muses came her way, and she ended up in a series of punk bands before joining the Sugar Cubes in 1986. Then, in 1993, having exhausted possibilities with that band, she went solo with a record called Debut, which wasn't her debut, of course. There was that record from 1977, but no matter. Debut was extremely well-received when it was released in July of 1993, right in the middle of the grunge explosion. And because many of the alt-rock nation of Gen Xers were very open to new ideas, they embraced Bjork. And she, in turn, taught them something about different musical styles, from trip-hop to, uh, well, stuff that was more Yorkish. Bjork and Big Time Sensuality from her debut solo record, well, sort of her debut solo record, confusingly called Debut, which it really wasn't. Anyway, from that point on, Bjork just became more and more eclectic. Uh, Weird, okay? Okay, maybe weird isn't the wrong word, Uh, but neither is quirky or for that matter, cool. It's artists like Bjork that keep music on its toes, even if what they do isn't for everyone. The world would be a much poorer place without people like Bjork. Number seven on my list of Queens of Quirk is PJ Harvey, Polly Jean Harvey. I adore this woman and everything that she's done, from her lo-fi beginnings to her adventures in something approaching cabaret to indie rock to singer-songwriter to collaborations with various musicians. And like all the other women on this list, she forged a reputation as being unnervingly fearless when it came to doing things her way and exploring themes of religion and sex and love and death and other difficult subjects. She can go from quiet piano songs to bruising punk-like performances. PJ loves to be theatrical and enjoys shifting her image from project to project. There's a lot we can choose from here. Um, Her career goes back to 1988, but I want to play you this from her 2011 album, Let England Shake. Call this uh, experimental folk rock with a liberal dose of alternative or something. This is called Written on the Forehead. P.J. Harvey with Written on the Forehead from her 2011 album Let England Shake, winner of that year's Mercury Music Prize, the big English music prize. That was the second time she won that award. If you don't remember the first time, it was for a record called Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea back in 2001. But the award ceremony was held on September 11th, 2001. So you'd be forgiven if that slipped your mind. But P.J. remains the only person to win the Mercury Prize twice. And there were the other two times she was nominated but didn't win. That record also won the Ivor Novello Songwriting Award in 2012. Plus, there are the eight Brit nominations, six Grammy nominations. So you can see that we could easily do two full programs on this woman. She is fascinating. So if you have time to explore her body of work, you should. But for the moment, we'll just include here on our list 
that we call the Queens of Quirk, and she's at number seven. I have three more to get to, and the woman at number eight is a no-brainer. I've described her as a Renaissance painting come to life, and she's done very well for herself. Hold tight. This is an episode entitled The Queens of Quirk. Ten of the, uh, well, quirkiest female singers from the world of alternative rock. And when I say that, I'm talking about their unusual voices, their different performance ways, and their offbeat, peculiar, incomparable, and extremely distinct ways of expressing themselves. They do not sound like your standard female singers. So, if you're expecting to see Florence Welch, she of Florence and the Machine on this list, here you go. Actually, Florence and the Machine is the name of the band, which is really made up of two people. There's Florence Welch, the singer, and Isabella Summers, whose nickname is The Machine. But for our purposes, we'll focus on just the redhead. Florence Leontine Mary Welch. Dad is an advertising executive who insisted that Florence put away the Ramones records and try different music. Mom is an academic. Harvard, Warburg, University of London, King's College London. And she's a professor of Renaissance studies which explains a lot about Florence right there. Like I said, to look at her is to gaze at a Renaissance painting come to life. And if that DNA weren't enough, her uncle is a famous satirist and freelance journalist for a ton of British newspapers. He's also a broadcaster and TV writer. And an aunt was an editor of the Daily Telegraph. So in other words, she comes from a very artsic, very literary, and very academic background. But then there's the emotional side of her background. Her parents divorced. The slow, painful death of a grandparent. Then a grandmother, who was an art historian, by the way, committed suicide. And then the other grandmother, another person who urged her to pursue music, died of a stroke. And to top it all off, Florence is dyslexic and has something called dyspraxia, which is a neurological disorder that affects the messages the brain gives to other parts of the body when it comes to coordinating movements. Sufferers often can't tell left from right, so don't ever ask them for directions. Plus, it can also lead to poor short-term memory, which is sometimes offset by excellent long-term memory. There's no cure for it, but it can be controlled through things like speech therapy and physiotherapy. I bring this all up because you can't be a performer and not have all these factors influence your art. I've spoken to Florence several times. You can sometimes tell that she struggles, but for the most part, everything is completely under control. And here's one more story. Florence got her current manager when she was very, very drunk. She ran into Mayrid Nash, one half of a UK outfit called Queens of Noise. A very blitzed Florence pestered Mayrid all night before following her into the toilets so she could sing her an Etta James song. She impressed, and that sealed the deal. Eventually, she ended up with a deal with Island Records that resulted in the Lungs album in the summer of 2009. Very big hit. Three million copies, plus a couple of prestigious awards. Thirteen songs in the record, six of which were released as singles. This was the second. Florence and the Machine with Dog Days Are Over from her, uh, well, there actually, because remember that we're actually talking about a band here, their debut album, Lungs. Comparisons to Kate Bush and Tori Amos started immediately, and they continue. Not that this is a bad thing, of course. Our next queen of quirk is Meryl Garvis, but you may know her by the name Tune Yards. She's from somewhere in New England and has been making some charmingly offbeat music since 2006. Very big hit with the indie pop crowd. The first Tune Yards record was released on a used and recycled cassette. 
The music was recorded using nothing but a handheld voice recorder. This led to a deal with 4AD, the wonderfully experimental alt-rock label out of the UK that also took a chance with bands like the Pixies, Bon Iver, The National, and so many others. It is impossible to categorize tune yards. There's alternative, indie pop, rock, funk, pop, folk, Afrobeat, free jazz, lots of loops, lots of samples, and Meryl really likes to play the ukulele. Plus, her notions of spelling and capitalization are um, unconventional. Let me play you some tune yards. You may have heard this song as part of an episode of The Good Wife or Orange is the New Black or Weeds. It's called Gangsta. That's Tune Yards, which is actually Meryl Garbus, and that's Gangsta from a 2011 album entitled Who Kill. There are a couple of other Tune Yards albums out there, and if you found that song interesting, I urge you to check out everything else. It is wonderfully different. Finally, I want to play you something from Courtney Barnett. This is a singer-songwriter from Melbourne who is a lot weirder than you might first think. Her singing style is pretty deadpan, and you may not pay attention to what she's actually saying. This is maybe the best example. It's from a 2013 release called The Double EP, A Sea of Split Peas. Very happy song entitled Avant Gardener. But if you listen to the words, you'll realize that it's about someone going into anaphylactic shock as the result of a bizarre gardening accident. I mean, who writes songs about that? The beautifully eclectic Courtney Barnett and Avant Gardner. So that is my list of 10 of my favorite quirky female singers from the world of alt-rock, all played back in chronological order. Patti Smith, Kate Bush, Lena Lovitch, Nina Hagen, Tori Amos, Bjork, PJ Harvey, Florence Welch, Toon Yards, and Courtney Barnett. There are plenty more, of course. We've got uh, St. Vincent, she's great. Uh, Joanna Newsom, Susie Sue might be a good for an extended version of this list. Liz Fraser of the Cocteau Twins, Lily Allen. Fiona Apple. All these women have wonderfully different and unique ways of expressing themselves through music. And although their styles may be startling at first and have us going, what's going on here? They all bring new richness to music. And that's always a good thing. You just got to give it a chance. Now let's give the men some equal time. Part two of this program will be the kings of quirk. And who might they be? Join me next time to find out. Meanwhile, look me up at my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, or email me at alan at alancross.ca. I would love to hear you. Oh, and join the newsletter, too, for all kinds of cool, interesting, and useful music information five days a week. It's free, and there is never, ever any spam. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first 
and explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists, uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey. And and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay, how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video; now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean. We're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing, you know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker, so it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time, and just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art affair is the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience 
where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line, right? I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Architects with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.